Dotnet Rocks episode 638 with guest Rob Eisenberg. Recorded live Wednesday, February 2nd, 2011. This episode is brought to you by Telerik and by Franklin's.net, training developers to work smarter. And now offering video training on Silverlight 4 with Billy Hollis and SharePoint 2010 with Sahil Malik. Order online now at franklins.net. And now here are Carl and Richard. Thank you very much. This is Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. We're here to talk.net. Hey, man. Howdy, sir. Oh, well, I don't know what to say except that it's still snowing and icing here. And and you've been... Plunking away. You've been busy, busy, busy. The new website, all that good stuff. Good oh, things the on. new website. Man, we have so many new features. Should we talk about that now? Uh, I presume by the time this show is published, it'll already be up. All right. Well, if you haven't been to our website lately, here's what we've got in store. We've got a tag cloud. Not yes. only that, but we have, uh, first of all, you know how our feeds used to only show the last 20 shows? Yeah. Yeah, screw that. We're showing them all. Going to go for them all. Okay. We're going to go for them all. You know, you don't have to download them all. No. I mean, that's a that's a decision that your your iTunes or whatever can decide. You and your done. ISP have to decide on that's that. That's right. <laughs> so if you want them all, you got them all. We had a master feed, but we didn't. You know, there was a link to it, and you had to find it and all that stuff. It was so now, confusing. Yeah. And now there's one RSS feed. We're MP3 only, of course, and you can essentially create your own custom feed based on tags. Right. So every show is tagged. And if you only want C-sharp shows or if you only want shows where we talk about uh, data or parallelism or, um, you know, that kind of thing or ASP.NET or MVC, you can get yourself a customized feed for that. There you go. Uh, also, we've uh, – what else do we have? We've got, we got a new uh, Facebook interface mm-hmm. and comment system. Yep. So we all should be able to have conversations about each show in That's line. right. You want to all you got to do is register with uh with us or with the you know the 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 software that does the comments and you can when you leave a comment you can opt to share on Twitter and Facebook right there. Right. So and then we have a, of course our Facebook landing page. So it's all good stuff. Yeah, we're just moving up into the 21st century. We also have a mobile site Cool. Essentially. And that's a text only site where you can search. You can, uh, essentially, there's links with descriptions and all that stuff, but it is text only and, you know, links to play the MP3s and the feed and all that stuff. And, that's, and we switch to a Silverlight player. We have a Silverlight player on the website. Yep. It's all good. I'd like to thank uh, Dax Pandy, yep. our, our resident graphics and ASP.NET guru, for putting all this together. It's all goodness. All right, yeah. let's get into Better Know Framework. All right, what do you got? Well, what I got now is let's say that you um, want to embed a media player in a Windows Forms application. Now, I don't, I haven't done this with Silverlight. I don't think you need to do this with Silverlight. But let's say you have a Windows Forms app that you want to play some uh, MP3 files or WMV files or something like that. There's an easy way to do it, and that is to use the PIA the, of Windows Media Player. It's essentially an ActiveX control that installs with the player. So first you install 
Windows Media Player 9 series is the one that I use. Okay. And then there's this file, WMPPIA.dll, that you register. And the namespace that you use is Microsoft.MediaPlayer.Interop.WindowsMediaPlayer. Okay. Well, that's not the namespace. That's the class. And so, you know, you can handle events with the player that uh, do everything from when your media is changed to when you're uh, you have a new stream to whether it's buffering or not. Like there's all sorts of events that you can handle. Um, there's warning position change. There's all sorts of great stuff. There's even more stuff than you get like with the Silverlight WPF player. Hmm. Um, so there you go. I've used it on a couple of occasions when I've needed that simple, quick and dirty uh, access to playing media files in a Windows Forms app. So nice. there it is. Microsoft.MediaPlayer.Interop.WindowsMediaPlayer. And the price is right. Price is right. And if you just Bing or Google WMPPIA.DLL, you'll find all sorts of articles about how to use it. Awesome. Yeah. So who's talking to us, Richard? Oh, I dug out an old one from back in November, and you probably remember it because we had a good chuckle of it over the time. Hi, Carl and Richard. We've just passed testing on a 200,000-line C-sharp project and are deploying tomorrow. We thought we should take a moment to enjoy the achievement with a visit to a nearby bar. <laughs> on arrival, we noticed that they stocked Woodford Reserve, and oh. we thought of you as we ordered a round. And they <laughs> sent us a photo of the three of them toasting with Woodford Reserve. Now, you know, you, you can't call yourself an American unless you drink bourbon. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it is our national liquor. This is the Isn't beverage it? you've brought to the world. Isn't it? Isn't it uh, the American? I mean, the Scotch have their Scotch whiskey, the Irish whiskey. You know, we have, you know, the French have cognac. I mean, every country has a specialty liquor that is patriotic, etc. You know, you could argue that you know Budweiser is our American drink, but you know, if you're, let's say you're in Europe, and you know you're you're having uh, you're being Scotcherized by the Europeans, and they're so proud of their Scotch, and you say. Have you ever had a real American bourbon? There you go. Pull out the Woodford Reserve. Also, you got Knob Creek. You got Maker's Mark. And, you know, somebody who's only drank Jack Daniels, which is prevalent everywhere yep. in Europe, but it's harder to find Maker's Mark or, or Woodford Reserve. But if you can find it, chances are they'll like it too. You bet. An email ends off. So thanks to you both for keeping us sane with .NET Rocks goodness. Matt Tanner, Ryle Peters, and Steve Saltis. I'll go with Saltis. Guys, thanks so much. We're shipping out a mug to you. And if you've got questions, concerns, ideas for shows, just want to say hi or that you're shipping software, send us an email. Rocks at Franklin's.net. Oh, yeah. And by the way, no hangovers. No hangovers. Yep. Well, un unless you drink it with soda or something sweet. And you're going to have a problem. Or nothing. Couple of ice cubes. Bing. Way to go. We're going to Norway again this year, are we not? Indeed we are. The Norwegian Developers Conference, June 8 to 10 in Oslo, Norway. And, uh, you know, if you, if you live in the area, you're probably aware of NDC. And if you're not, this show has gone from a small-scale sort of get-together to this huge show. How many people were at the last one? Uh, well over a thousand, uh, maybe yeah. fifteen hundred. It was amazing, and the list of speakers uh, reads like a list of uh, guests on .NET Rocks. Yeah, I think 
the goo is going to be there this year? Well, yes. Uh, Mr. Guthrie actually tweeted a little while ago, looking forward to going to NDC, which is pretty exciting. That's awesome. But don't just go for him. Stephen Forte will be there. John Skeet, Rob Connery, uh, Bob Martin, Billy Hollis. Yeah, and and we're doing uh, some stuff there, too. We'll be having um, interviews. We'll be doing interviews. and You bet. There's going to be a fishbowl there, so we'll be knocking out a few interviews. And uh, to support the new mobility track that they're doing, we'll be hosting a panel discussion on iPhone, Android, and WinPhone 7. That's right. So look forward to that. And uh, also, I've been known to bring my guitar and play a little bit. Yeah, I think we'll do a little of that. There's early bird tickets right now. They're only good till March 1st. So go to ndc2011.no. Richard, our guest today is Rob Eisenberg. Rob is a .NET architect and developer working out of Tallahassee, Florida. He is a partner with Christopher Benage at Blue Spire Consulting. That's Benage, B-E-N-N-A-G-E. A software development firm specializing in .NET technologies, user experience, and interface design. Rob got his start with computer programming at the age of nine, when he thoroughly fell in love with his family's brand new Commodore 64. His fascination with programming started with the Commodore Basic language, then moved to Q and Q Basic. Q, we're going to have to talk about that, and quickly continued on to C, C++, and presently C Sharp in the .NET framework. Rob publishes technical articles regularly at devlicious, that's D-E-V-L-I-C-I-O dot U-S, and has spoken at regional events and to companies concerning .NET technologies, agile software practices, and UI engineering. He is co-author of Sam's Teach Yourself WPF in 24 Hours, and is the architect and lead developer of the Caliburn and Caliburn.micro frameworks for WPF, Silverlight, and Windows Phone 7. When not coding, Rob enjoys swing dancing, making artisan cheese, and playing drums. Man, you are speaking my language. <laughs> How are you doing? First of all, before we get into this, what's is, is Q a Commodore 64 technology? No, no, no. It was... Uh, it was- basic uh, oh. on, uh, on PC. It was kind of like the oh, yeah, I remember. watered-down version of Quick Basic. Okay, I thought you because it just said Q and Quick Basic, but it's Q Basic and Quick. Yeah, Q Basic was the sort of the basic interpreter that came with DOS. That was uh, you know older versions of DOS. Yep. Yeah. Yep. But uh, uh, in in just one thing, being sentimental here, I remember being you know I, I learned on a Tandy, what was it, a TRS-80 Model 4, I think. And uh, I remember going to my friend's house that a Commodore 64 and booting up into BASIC and saying, so how do you use this thing? And they're like, oh, well, you got to write a program to do everything. <laughs> so like BASIC functionality, you'd have to write programs for. Isn't that right? Yeah, but it was fun, man. A yeah. Blue screen. That was a good blue screen. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the blue screen of life. And the disk drive in the Commodore 64, the 1541 disk drive, and I remember that number because I serviced them, had the same processor in it as the computer itself. They both had 6502s in them. Wow. But there was a flaw in the drive. The problem with the drive, the floppy drive is you could command it to seek to track 80, and it only had 40 tracks, and so the head would literally seek off the end of the bar. So you hear the drive go, tick, 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 thud, thud. and the head would fall <laughs> off the end of the rails. 
I fix those. Oh, I man. spend a summer putting the heads back into 1541 <laughs> hard drive, floppy drives. Oh, it's crazy the things that you could do with that stuff. <laughs> it's a different kind of virus. It's a virus that right. means your disk drive does nothing anymore. Oh, man. So, Rob, let's talk yeah. about Caliburn and Caliburn.micro. Yeah. Well, uh, let me give you the brief background and just tell you what the heck the thing is to begin with. Yeah. So your listeners uh, have some clue. But basically, um, if you know what ASP.NET MVC framework is or what the web forms framework is for the web, they're, you know, they're, they're presentation layer frameworks for building web apps. So Calibrin and Calibrin Micro are basically presentation layer frameworks for WPF, Silverlight, and Windows Phone 7. Hmm. And uh, Calibrin came first, and it, and it came into existence uh, sometime in 2007, early to mid-2007, when we were building a lot of line-of-business apps or trying to build business line-of-business apps in WPF and uh, just doing a lot of experimentation and different things with that technology. And we started to see some uh, places of pain uh, in using the technology. Um, we started to realize we were writing lots of code over and over again and just dealing with the boilerplate stuff that starts to arise as you build real applications. And so we started uh, finding some common solutions and extracting that uh, into a framework, and that eventually became Calvern. Now, it's grown a lot uh, and changed a lot over the last few years, um, so it, it really doesn't look anything like it did back then. But uh, an accurate way of describing it is that it's a, a presentation layer framework, and it embraces the uh, MVVM or model view, view model pattern, uh, really kind of taking it to its end in terms of thinking of everything in terms of view models and composition of view models and how this can make application building easier. And it's an opinionated framework in that it has a set of constraints and a set of conventions that if you uh, follow them, will make uh, application development much easier, quicker, lead you down the right path. And it can actually, as a result of that, do a lot of work uh, on your behalf. You don't have to think about that. Give us an idea of some of the patterns that we're talking about, the UI patterns. Sure. Um, well, there's the, the basic sort of larger scale architectural patterns like model view view model and uh, model view presenter. But there's also sort of a, a series of smaller patterns, if you will, that that come uh, into play when you're you're using model view view model. So, for example, uh, view models uh, typically you you leverage this architecture pattern with with a lot of data binding, and you have your view model class and your view, and they're connected and synchronized via data binding. But there's a missing piece of that equation, which is the user interaction. So how do you get from the user clicking a button to executing some method on a view model? Yeah. And, uh, you know, if you're coming from the, the, the traditional way to do this in .NET with Windows Forms and, and things like that was that you had your event handler, and then you put some code in the code behind, and you might do some casting to try and pull a presenter or a view model out from somewhere and call a method on it. But that's the type of boilerplate code we wanted to eliminate because what we really wanted to see is a way to sort of data bind methods in the same way that we could data bind properties. And we wanted to go directly from, say, a button click to invoking a method on uh, on the view model. 
So that's a particular feature we call Actions, which is named after uh, being inspired by things like Monorail and, and Microsoft MVC. But it's just the notion of some user interaction causes some method on a view model to execute. And we do all the work in the background to wire up the events, to do um, uh, execution of that method, to forward any uh, parameters that need to be passed in and to do type coercion and various things like that. Hmm. And we can actually add a lot of really advanced features on top of method invocation uh, because we let the framework sort of do it for us. Like I said, without that, you've either got to go to the code behind or you've got to do something like people use a pattern called a relay command or delegating command where they, they create a kind of wrapper command object that wraps the method and then proxies it through to the to the view so that they can actually data bind it. Basically, it just results in some kind of silly boilerplate code that you just have to mindlessly type in order to connect these pieces together. So we just say... You know, let's let the framework do that for you. And on top of that, because the framework is doing this, we can add some even more advanced uh, functionality on top of that. That's one of those smaller level patterns that we sort of implement behind the scenes so the developers don't even need to think about that. So one of the conventions that you prefer, Calibre.micro prefers, is view model first development. Tell us about that. So there's... There's typically two different ways to approach um, problems when you're trying to uh, work out a solution in your user interface. And it really has to do with the way you approach the pattern mentally uh, and a little bit of the way the framework sort of creates pieces and puts them together. So there's view first and view model first. Okay. And with view first, you would start by literally uh, creating your view and then creating your view model. And the framework would do things in that order. And in that type of a scenario, the view is is really driving things just a little bit more um, in terms of the interactions, in terms of um, activating and deactivating different parts of the UI. The, you want a lot of that to be in the view model, but by the nature of sort of that workflow and the way things are instantiated and, and put together, the view ends up driving a little bit more. Well, so with the view I've... model first, you have the... Uh, view model created first, and then based on that, you uh, associate a view with it, and it puts the view model in a position to even, uh, to a greater degree, sort of drive uh, how the views are composed and how they function and so on and so forth. But if you think about it, view first is, well, it's certainly how I've done most of my development, with, you know, starting in, back in the days of Visual Basic, when you had a great designer that... Uh, you you know you sit down with the customer essentially with VB and say okay so what kinds of things do you want this to do and based on that you sort of come up with the UI first um, it seems a, a more natural way to develop for me because you're really talking about the user's requirements absolutely uh, and practically when you're actually developing you would probably have both things happening at the same time sure. Uh, the important part is that the framework itself, when it goes uh, at runtime and actually puts these things together, it starts with the view model, then locates a view, then composes them, does some other fancy stuff. And as a result, some of the way composition occurs within your user interface is more controlled at runtime by the view model, and that can actually make certain uh, user interface scenarios a little bit easier to, to engineer 
Um, so it's not, it can be a little bit of perspective from the developer's uh, point of view when they're thinking about solving the problem. But practically, when you are actually building your UI, you, you know, you may actually build out the view first mm. in a designer or with your customer. But at runtime, you want the view model to actually drive everything as opposed to the view sort of partially driving it with the view model doing some other part. Okay. So it really has to do with what happens at runtime and how the developer thinks about um, those interactions between the two. This portion of .NET Rocks is brought to you by our friends at Telerik. So you know all about the power of ASP.NET MVC, but you might be in need of some good tools to enhance your productivity. Well, our friends at Telerik just shipped the latest release of the Telerik extensions for ASP.NET MVC, 18 jQuery-based native MVC extensions. Now you can enhance productivity by remaining in control of your views without having to write all HTML, CSS, and JavaScript by hand. Did I mention that the Telerik MVC extensions are also free and open source? Plus, now you can check all MVC online demos in both ASPX and Razor views since the extensions offer full support for ASP.NET MVC 3 and the Razor view engine. Download your free copy today at Telerik.com slash freemvc. And don't forget to thank them for supporting .NET Rocks. So let's talk about the, uh, the view resolution, which, as you say, is the, uh, in the docs, is the first convention you're likely to encounter. So it's, it's pretty simple. When we were building a lot of apps and looking at the way other people were building a lot of apps, we noticed that people followed a very simple naming convention. If they had like a customer edit view model, they would typically have a customer edit view. And so they were doing some manual work to instantiate the two and to set the data context and bind them together and so on and so forth. So what we said is, you know, this is a convention that we feel comfortable with. We see a lot of other people are using already. Let's embed this into the framework and let the framework do it for us. So with view model first and Caliber Micro, when your app starts, we actually don't load up uh, a root visual or a window or anything like that in WPF. What we actually do is we ask you for your root view model. And once we find your view model, we then, via convention, find the view that goes with that. And then we data bind them together for you. And then after that, we apply a series of conventions over the bindings as well. We could, we could mm. talk about that. That's where it gets really interesting. That's where you see the view model first behavior come into play in the framework, and that's where you see that first convention. And it's just a simple naming convention. You can actually organize your solution in a lot of different ways. Mm. A lot of people like to group their views in a namespace and their view models in another namespace, or I personally like to organize my, my solutions by feature. Um, but however you do it, um, the basic naming convention literally can, uh, can match them together like that. Okay. Again, it's just a little bit of boilerplate code, but if you're building larger and larger apps, it's code you don't have to write. You can follow that convention, and you know from the get-go, this is how I'm going to uh, assemble my, my solution. Much like in, in ASP.NET MVC, you have a naming scheme and an organizational scheme for mm -hmm. where you put your controllers and where you put your views and how all that works. Right. The framework can do a lot for you, so it's the same sort of concept but with uh, model view, view model. And the view model binder is the probably yeah, the so next the, thing that you're going to 
come into contact with? Yeah, so this, that's the piece that actually uh, does this. Once we locate the view and we have your view model, we, we then bind them together. And that's, that's the simple uh, process of setting the data context at first, but then we go and we apply a bunch of other conventions. And all these are name-based conventions. You can turn them on or off if, if you're uncomfortable with the notion of conventions like this. But we do some pretty simple things. So, for example, if you have a button named Save in your view, and your view model has a method named save, we'll assume uh, via convention that you want the clicking of the button to execute that method. So we'll mm. automatically wire those up. Nice. Um, additionally, we can do this with data bindings. So if you have a text box named say first name and you have a property on your view model called first name, we'll automatically wire them up. And we'll do this in an intelligent way such that if we see that your property has getters and setters, we'll automatically make the data binding a two-way data binding. If we see that your view model implements uh, iData error info, we'll automatically turn validation on on the data binding. Nice. Um, so we can do a lot of things like that. Um, we can even apply uh, string conversion and value converters um, to the data binding automatically. Wow. It's good to be sort of as intuitive as, as we could make it. Right. Again, a lot of people really, really love it. It tends to be a polarizing thing. You either really, really love this idea and and you see how much time it can really save you uh, and how much simpler your markup can be as a result, or you just are uncomfortable with this kind of magical ability. And this is all about names, right? This is about naming conventions. Make this all work. Yeah. Right. And you can turn it on and off at the framework level or on a per-view basis. Um, I have a lot of people that say, well, what about the performance of this, uh, these kinds of things? And I, and I generally say, well, I haven't seen any problems with that. But for productivity's sake, start building your app with conventions on. And if you find a view that has some sort of performance issue, just turn conventions off on that one view and go back to manually wiring everything. But you can always do all these things manually. But uh, if you don't have to, and if the conventions fit your way of development, then you can save a lot of time. I'm trying to figure out how using a convention will degrade performance. Well, there's a little bit of reflection that happens in the background to inspect your view model. Okay. Um, but, you know, there's, there's actually quite a bit of reflection happening anyways in the data binding system and, mm. and various other places. So right. uh, we haven't really seen it. It may cause any problems, but again, you know, that knob is kind of there for you to tweak, uh, turn it off if you want. And all the conventions are customizable. You can add your own. You can override various behaviors. I've got, um, I don't know if you guys know Kevin Dente. He, uh, he's been messing around with it, and the other day he came up with the idea that he could plug in a custom convention for localization by just matching a name pattern on things like labels hmm. and having the uh, framework automatically look up localization resources based on that. So wow. you can do all kinds of things once you start thinking in terms of, of these kind of convention ideas and uh, and how you could use what's out of the box but also extend it. Um, so, you know, every architecture, if there is an architecture, probably has some set of conventions inherent in it. Um, otherwise, it's it's probably a disaster area. But But you may not have those conventions made explicit in your infrastructure. So what we do is we just try and make those conventions very explicit, and uh, and then the framework can do a lot of work for you. And the, the convention manager seems to be the, 
the center of the universe for that, right? Right. So that's the class where you could customize a lot of those things. Yep. And and it if you're using the conventions, it will build your actions for you, or will it uh, bind to your own actions? So um, basically, the way it works, going going back to the action uh, convention, is if it finds that matching name. Uh, between the button, say, and a method, it will build the the actions under the covers for you and apply it. Basically, mm-hmm. it uses the expression blend behaviors under the covers, and I've got some custom plugins into that that I've built that are Calibre Micro-specific. And there's a lot of markup that you have to do explicitly to set that, but if you just if you just match the names, I'll build all that under the covers for you and just you know, wire it up. Now, we're smart about all these conventions in another way, too, which is that if we notice that you already have an action explicitly specified or if you already have a data binding expression explicitly on a property, we will not ever overwrite that. Uh, we assume that you wanted to sort of take control for a special case, uh, so we don't, you know, we don't try and usurp that from you. So even with conventions turned on, you can still bind to your own actions? Exactly. Cool. And we never overwrite things. We always detect that to make sure that we're not stepping on your feet. It, it feels more like you're just trying to create a set of default behaviors around what happens most of the time, largely just based on naming conventions and scope of the elements. Exactly. Exactly. It must be really productive to use then. I mean, you know, because the, the people who throw rocks at MVVM always say, well, it's too much code, you know, it's too much work, but it is a great pattern. Um, so I imagine, you know, using, using Caliburn Micro or Caliburn is going to help with your productivity a lot. I mean, I can imagine even being more productive in this than with straight WPF or Silverlight. Yeah, it, it helps a lot. And your code, um, you know, it looks, tends to look very clean. You don't have a lot of infrastructure stuff going into your view models. You know, like I said, when you use a delegating command to sort of make the data binding work with your methods, you, you get these extra properties on your view model that are really only there for the data binding system, and it obscures the real behavior of the view model. Um, you know, if you're just looking at the code trying to see what's happening there, you get all these extra properties that are just infrastructure stuff. So your, your view models end up being a lot cleaner, uh, simpler to look at, and as long as you understand some basic conventions, then you can see how they they very naturally will bind against the view. Rob, how's this stack up against something like Prism? Because you know, I, I'm always folks are always tempted to take the Microsoft solution, and I thought the Prism fell in this general area as well. It definitely uh, follows in this area. The the three frameworks I think that I've seen kind of rise to the top and are in this category are Prism. Uh, MVVM Light Toolkit and Calibern and Calibern Micro. Um, the Prism is a little bit closer to Calibern. Um, it's, uh, it has a little bit more that it does in terms of base classes and, um, you know, it, it has modularization features and it has, uh, some features around UI composition and event aggregation and things like that. Uh, MVVM Light Toolkit is a framework that is sort of you can think of as your bare minimum uh, that you need to do MVVM. Uh, right. It's got you know a simple base class with property change notifications. It's got uh, a pub sub event system. 
a couple of other little pieces like that that you would, if you were going to do MVVM, you would pretty much have to build them. Um, so that's your bare minimum. Then Calibrin and uh, Micro and Prism are sort of, if you will, a step up in terms of doing a little bit more for you. Now, the Prism sort of takes a little bit different of a mindset, I would say, um, in that it comes initially from more of a perspective of model view presenter and its original uh, versions, whereas Calibre and Micro and Calibre were always sort of coming a lot more from a view model perspective. And this is actually where you see uh, a divergence with the view first versus the view model first. So Prism, um, it tends to take a little bit more of a view first approach uh, as opposed to Calibre. So you, you see that perspective and that kind of way of thinking about solving the problems filter through the design of the frameworks. Um, you know, Calibern, it has conventions. Pretty much nothing else really does that. Um, the actions, features, I could talk a little bit more about what we do in addition to just binding to a method, but we have a whole set of other kind of neat things around that. that sure, yeah, let, let's go into that. So actions, the basic feature is, you know, we, we go from a UI interaction to a method on a view model. But because we're controlling the invocation of that method, we can do some, some really rather interesting things. Um, so the first thing is say that we have a method called save on our view model. Well, we may also want to, say, disable or enable that button in our view based off of, uh, you know, whether we can save if we've changed data or whether it's valid or whatnot. So we look for a pattern on your view model. We look for either a property or a method called can save. And if we find that when we're creating the action, we'll wire that up in such a way that it will uh, automatically enable or disable whatever UI that action is is connected to. Uh, so we get a little bit of, call, I call these guard conditions, uh, which where we can basically stop the uh, interaction from occurring and show the appropriate UI queue uh, based off of a property or a method. Uh, one of the other things we do is we allow parameters to be passed in to methods, which we can data bind out of elements in the UI. Um, I don't use this technique a lot because I do think it can be it can get out of hand and be a little bit unmaintainable. But there are certain very specific scenarios where it's actually a very elegant and simple solution. So take a login screen where you really your view model is just going to have like a single method called login that takes a username and password. Well, we can literally bind the text box named username and the text and the password box named password as parameter inputs into that method on the view model. And if you have a guard method, such as a, a can login, we can also bind the parameters into that method and automatically reevaluate the guard when any of the values of those parameters change. Um, so we can do some really kind of intricate, advanced uh, things in that scenario. So. Imagine the login button is disabled unless you've typed, uh, you know, something in the username and the password, or, or even password restriction criteria, like at least six characters, like that whole thing. Yep. So anytime uh, that the parameter inputs change, we can automatically reevaluate the guard. And we do under the covers. We're using the data binding mechanism of the platform, and we wire off a whole bunch of stuff to sort of observe and know when we need to trigger these things. But you get that functionality just by having a save method and a, and a can save method on your view model. 
and it just it just works. Hey, this is like taking convention over configuration all the way. Yep, yep. We, I mean, I uh, I take a few things to their sort of logical extreme, and then and I try and give a little bit of guidance around. You know, hey, don't don't use this in every situation, but mm. but use it when the situation demands. You know, or, or the view model is simple enough, or there's just no other way to do this. You know, you know, implement feature X without using this. Uh, you know, where it would be very, very painful or there'd be a lot of code or very difficult. So this particular feature is there for those scenarios. Um, but, you know, I personally try and avoid it when, it, you know, it's more of a last resort, but it really makes certain things easy um, when they arrive. At Franklin's Net right now, you can get a DVD with over 11 hours of Billy Hollis on Silverlight 4 or 14 hours of Sahil Malik on SharePoint 2010, each for only $6.95. Order online at www.franklins.net. Are you looking to change jobs? Infusion Development has offices in New York City, Toronto, London, Dubai, and Poland. Infusion has hired a whole handful of Happy.net Rocks listeners. Contact me for an introduction at carl at franklins.net. Um, you talk about screens and conductors. Let's talk about those a bit. This is, uh, again, it's another feature in there that you know not everybody needs to use, but uh, when you get yourself in a situation that warrants it, it, it makes things simple. Basically, these are a set of base classes. You can think of them as Legos. Uh, for building different types of application shells. And you can sort of plug them together in a different way to get uh, different behaviors for the way that uh, your application might, uh, the shell might go together. And uh, let me give you some examples from apps that you've used where, where these classes would come into play. If you start by just thinking of basic web browser, and not not a modern web browser with tabs, but back a generation or two of web browsers where there was yeah. just, you navigated from page to page and that was it. Mm. Um, think of the life cycle uh, that the web browser is enforcing upon that page. There are certain actions that occur at the load of that page. There are certain actions that need to occur at the unload of that page. And in fact, there's certain JavaScript things that can happen that would prevent navigating away from that page. So there's sort of a life cycle around that. So one of the things that conductors do is we uh, extract that notion of a of a screen lifecycle into a superclass, and we basically say, hey, if you inherit your view models from screen and you put them inside of this conductor class, then we'll sort of maintain this workflow of activation and deactivation uh and call back into you at various key points so that you can affect the logic and the flow of those things. And this scenario comes up all the time. Just imagine, uh, you know, if you're building a Silverlight navigation app, that's one scenario identical to what I described. If you're building a wizard, uh, you can think of that as a series of pages you're navigating to, and you may need to stop the navigation back or forward at certain certain points. Um, or if you're thinking of... Um, Perhaps you're editing a customer record and somebody wants to close the record and they've changed the data, but you want to stop them from closing that record without, you know, notifying them, hey, you're going to lose what you saved. These sort of scenarios start cropping up all over the place and there's this, and you have to, what we found ourselves doing at least is rewriting a lot of the logic 
to handle those over and over again. And this is also a place where you end up getting into, if there's any place I've seen or found myself really creating spaghetti code, it's around these type of scenarios because you end up starting to, you know, if you start from scratch, you start to wire up events and you want to see, okay, when is this unloading and when is this loading and I've got to call back into this method and it, it turns into a tangled mess. So we approach this from a view model first perspective where we sort of embed these lifecycle patterns into a couple of different types of view models. And if you inherit from these, you just override a couple of methods and we'll just tell you, you know, hey, activate yourself, hey, deactivate yourself, or hey, we're about to close. You know, do you want to allow this screen to close and so on and so forth? And so there's a various uh, different incarnations of these patterns and you can compose them in different ways. Uh, to create all different kinds of shell behaviors. So if you think of like Visual Studio, it's got a bunch of screens active at the same time, but for the most part, you've got that document area where you've got maybe a C-sharp file open, maybe a XAML file open, maybe a XML file open. And depending on which one of those files is active, the toolbars change. Yeah. Uh, so you might get an XML document-specific toolbar, or you might get... Uh, uh, toolbar icons related to C-sharp when you activated that. So all these kind of scenarios where you need to sort of know what the user is looking at, what's activated, uh, because you've got to change other parts of the application. Those are the kinds of things that the screens and conductors pieces are literally just like Lego blocks. You can kind of assemble them together to make whatever type of shell you're making and then override the appropriate methods as necessary to control the, the workflow and things like that. So a little bit, um, you know, at first I think if people try and jump into the this particular feature area, it can be a little bit confusing. But when you're building a real application and you come across these scenarios and you try and solve them, that's when using these features just make it as simple as, you know, deriving and overriding a method and, and everything just works. Um, and we've gone through several different implementations of these types of patterns across various different projects we've built, um, and uh, and we've arrived at the implementation we have now. And they're all composable. So, you know, you can imagine... Let me, let me give you a little more complex scenario so you can imagine how this might work. Back to the web browser. Think now of the modern web browser where you have multiple tabs, and each, each one of those individual tabs goes through multiple pages. So the web browser knows which tab you're looking at right now, and may do things depending on when you switch from tab to tab, but also things happen inside of that page when you go from page to page to page inside of the tab. So you've got all these kind of complex interactions that are happening, and we can model this all very simply by composing our screens and conductors in a, in a particular way to form that, that type of a shell pattern. So it um, just makes those things really, really simple, helps you avoid spaghetti code. Mm. Um, like I said, it's if you, if you don't come across that scenario, then it would overly complicate your solution to use them. But when you do find yourself needing to handle activation or shut down a certain screen, cancellation, all these kinds of things, then it's there for you to compose in and, uh, and very simply use. That's, that's in a nutshell. It's, there's a lot of thinking and a lot of evolution uh, behind that and a lot of personal pain trying to solve those problems in the past. 
I'm trying to imagine how this shows up in Visual Studio. It, is it pretty much just transparent? It's just a set of libraries you've loaded? So, you know, all those things are just, are just uh, base classes for view models. Okay. So each one of them would have their own view. And uh, you would, you know, you would edit the view. Uh, so for a conductor, you might create a view that was basically a tab control uh, over a collection. But the view model itself would be the conductor view model that that controls how that tab control actually works and hooks into the activating and deactivating of those different tabs. Right. You know, so in Visual Studio, you just you see your view just like you normally would in um, in the designer. And you just have your view model that would probably inherit from like a conductor uh, as a normal class, and that just happens to be the class that encapsulates the behavior of that user interface and and conducts it, if you will, through its through its spaces. The main thing is that you're basically picking a base class to work from, and you go from there. Yes, and it's a, it's a base class for the view model, not not for the view. Right, but it controls the behavior of the view. And did I understand there's some uh, ability to build WinPhone 7 apps using Calibre Micro? Absolutely. Um, Calibre Micro uh, works on WPF, Silverlight, and Windows Phone 7. And one of the things that we did was to try and bring as much of this workflow uh, from Silverlight into the phone as we could and to go a little bit further to integrate with some of the phone-specific features. So, for example... Um, if you build a Phone 7 app, you know that it sort of has a navigation paradigm built into it. Mm-hmm. So what we do is we hook into that navigation paradigm, and we do some some neat things with that. We uh, The phone, via that navigation paradigm, is sort of a view-first approach because the phone itself is loading pages, and there's no way to intercept that and sort of load the view model first. So we work backwards, and we and we connect things the other way. So if you... Uh, load a certain page, we'll then locate the view model, and then we'll bind them, and we can apply all the same conventions that we do uh, with Silverlight and WTF against your phone pages. And we do some other neat things. Uh, one common thing with navigation in, in phone apps is that you would uh, navigate to a page and have some query string parameters. Right. So we take those query string parameters, we parse them out, and we look at your view model and we see if you've got any properties with the same names as those parameters. And if you do, we'll coerce, I've coerced the values and push them into those properties. So you never need to worry about how am I getting that parameter uh, string and from query string information into my view model. We just, as part of that navigation note that we do, we push those things in there. Um, the other thing, uh, a couple of neat things we do is um, there's a real problem with doing view models against the app bar in the phone because the app bar is actually mostly implemented in native code with a very thin uh, wrapper on top of it. And so it doesn't support data binding or behaviors or any of the things you would typically use. But because our binder is applying all these conventions, one of the things it does is it inspects the view to see if it has an app bar. And if it does, we do a little bit of extra work behind the scenes so that we can take all the features of actions and apply them into the app bar, so your app bar buttons and app bar menus. That's clever. Uh, so you get a very simple, very seamless experience. You don't really have to change the way you deal with the app bar versus the way you would deal with uh, with other buttons or throughout your app and so on and so forth. It just sounds like there's, they, we're close to an idea where you could actually build 
uh, a chunk of code that ran fairly well in both the phone and in on the web? Fairly well. That the main thing is going to be that um, basically the outer shell of the app, because the phone is really using that navigation framework, and then from that point in the architecture, it's going view first and has a very uh, explicit way that the phone expects to to run your app. Yeah, you have to take that into account. But within inside of each individual page, that can be identical um, across the platforms for the most part. You could almost build a framework onto onto the web side of things that would support that behavior, maybe a little different interpretation, so you use the screen better and use a paradigm that's more web centric. But and uh, you got me you got me thinking now, Rob. There's some interesting ideas here about getting to that nirvana of right once run across the platforms. Well, the main thing for me is uh, it's not even the the differences in the, between the technologies, but um, you know. Starting with WPF back in, I don't know, when I started, 2005 or 2006, developing sort of a methodology and a way of thinking about solving and architecting these solutions, for me, it was it would have been a much uh, bigger issue, I'd say, to have to go and come to the phone and rethink everything entirely. Right. Think about how I build things entirely differently. Yeah. So what Caliber Micro lets you do is sort of use the same conventions, the same mental approach to solving problems across the three platforms, even if there are some slight uh, differences, uh, you know, here and there. But mainly the mental overhead is not there to be switching and how switching back and forth between how you're architecting things. You can think the same way, solve problems the same way. Um, you just might have a different control on the phone. Or the route might start with a view, uh, a navigation architecture that's a little bit different or whatnot. But mainly, you can you can think the same way about solving those problems. And for me, that's where the big time savings come, has come in over the years. Uh, it's taken a long time to sort of understand, work through these patterns, these concepts, and see you know, simple and elegant ways to solve them. It, it's funny, actually, because... It oftentimes takes a really long time to come around to the simple solution. <laughs> Your first, I found that my first way of solving problems was has been overly complicated, but over the years, I've come around to very, very simple solutions to things. So I want to keep that simple mindset when I'm going across these platforms and not have to start over from scratch mentally uh, and go through that whole process again. That's a great help to me, and I've, I've seen a lot of good response from phone developers using the framework. They really just they like the the mental approach and and the way of composing apps, mm. uh, and they like that there's a fairly seamless uh, transition from WPF or Silverlight into the phone for them. Um, there's not any new concepts they need to learn. They just need to just need to realize, oh well, we don't have a tab control on the phone, but we do have this pivot control, and they're conceptually the same kind of a UI, and they can work with the view model in conceptually the same kind of a way, so they can. They can engineer their view models the same as they always did, but just throw a different type of a view on top of it. That, that becomes really powerful. So tell us quickly, because I know we only have a few minutes left, what the difference between Calibern and Calibern.micro is. Right, so that's, uh, that's kind of a critical point that may be confusing the people at this point. So the first framework was Calibern, and it, like I said, it came into existence sometime in 2007 and has evolved a lot. 
It was originally designed for WPS, and it was designed for larger applications. It's extremely modular in the traditional sense of there's interfaces for all of its services. You can customize and replace everything. It has a lot of adapters to other external uh, projects. So if you want to use IOC with it, we have adapters for every major IOC container. And it's, it's rather large, and, uh, and though the feature set is, is very nice, I found that uh, developers, though they were enticed by it, were a little bit afraid to use it because of its complexity and because it had a little bit of dependency on some legacy, if I can call it that, some legacy WPF. In other words, things that they fixed later on or improved that I wasn't able to take advantage of at that time. So I wanted to expose developers to the concepts of conventions and um, and actions and all these neat things we were doing. Uh, so at Mix last year, I had the chance to do a session called Build Your Own MVVM Framework, in which I basically wrote a little itty-bitty framework, about 500 lines of code, that showed how you could build a lot of these features very simply and how much productivity you could get out of it. What well, I got so much positive response from that, from individuals as well as companies that were just highly interested in seeing that fleshed out a little bit more, that I decided to see if I could roughly expand it, uh, but only so much as to cover the main use cases of, of that caliber it covered, say like 80 to 90% of the main use cases without worrying too much about edge cases, and to keep it as small and tight and compact as possible. And so that's where the Caliber Micro came from. Okay. It's about 10% of the code size of Caliber, but it literally has 80 to 90% of the features because it focused so much on the main cases. And um, so it's a lot simpler, a lot easier to understand. Um, it's a little bit more up-to-date in terms of some of the new features in the frameworks and how it leverages them. We've added a link also to the... Uh, Caliburn versus Caliburn.micro um, page on CodePlex. And a couple of things that you mentioned here, Caliburn supports AOP, aspect-oriented programming. Uh, Caliburn has a validation abstraction, a module framework, a uh, testability framework, a view model factory. So there are differences. But you also say... Uh, prefer to use Caliburn Micro over Caliburn is what you say also. Well, it feels like it's the next version. It is, in a sense, a new version of... It's almost like if I could do this over again. Yeah, you. I, I, I've been, had that experience where after finishing a really complex project, mm. I sat down and noodled it down again, like how would you take it on differently? And you end yeah. up writing 90% of the functionality and 20% of the code. Am I right in assuming that a lot of this functionality has been replaced with good conventions? Uh, a lot of it has, and uh, although what I've been doing with uh, Caliburn 2.0 is trying to maintain uh, API compatibility between the two in the areas that a developer would touch the framework the most. So, for example, all the conductors are code identical in their implementation, but the conventions, while they are the same between the two frameworks, they're implemented very differently yeah. between the two. Uh, so there's things like that. Um, so, like you said, I had a validation infrastructure uh, abstraction in, in Calburn. Well, that abstraction is not present in Micro. Um, I, and I think when I looked back at Calburn, there was some unnecessary abstraction there. There was um, 
things like that, that because there was so much variance in the way that developers wanted to do particular things, I created these elaborate abstractions. Mm. So in Caliber Micro, I just said, well, I'm just not going to go there. Yeah. Uh, I'll just make sure that they have some point where they could plug in feature X if they wanted to deal with it. Um, so that eliminates a, a lot of code. Um, and it turns out that, you know, most of those things, like validation, it's just, it's, uh, it's pretty simple to, you know, if you're going to use the out-of-the-box attribute validation to just write a little class and, yeah. and plug it into the right place than to deal with, like, having to implement my abstraction. Right. And then plug in all that. Uh, so it was some rethinking around those things. I really focused on the main use cases and making it small. Um, Great. It's what I use now. Uh, I use Caliber Micro on all my new projects, and I encourage people to do that. And uh, there's even been some people that have missed some features in it that they liked in Caliber, but Micro is extensible enough in the right places where they actually came up with ways to implement um those features, like some of the AOP stuff that we did in Calibern, yeah. you can actually implement very simply and plug into the right place in Micro mm. if you want that feature. But we don't provide it, you know, out of the box. Well, Rob, it's been a eye-opening, and thank you for being so succinct and so uh, and such a great speaker. Um, it's it's a great framework, and uh, it's obvious to me the the benefit to using it. Well, thank you for having me, and. Uh, Hopefully listeners will uh, have some new ideas, new ways of thinking about you know, how they might get rid of that or the plate code they're working on. And uh, yeah. even if they don't want to use Calibre Micro, it's a fun thing to sort of take a look at and just get some ideas about awesome. uh, different ways to do things. So, Well, and we've uh, put a whole bunch of links and uh, your bio also, your Twitter uh, handle and all that on the .NET Rocks page, so head on over there for that information. Thank you very much again, and thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on .NET Rocks. .NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, Go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got a transmitter band by the FCC. Yes, I'm a. Uh...